Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Before we get on with the interview, I would be remiss not to let you know that my new online course, Medieval Sword and Buckler, which is a complete training course in the art of the sword and buckler as represented in Royal Armory's Manuscript 133, is now ready. And I am launching it this week with a 50% discount that you can find at guywindsor.net forward slash buckler. That discount voucher, the 50% off, will expire on Wednesday. Best crack on with it. If you're listening to this show after Wednesday, the 20th of October, then that same link will take you to the same course, but unfortunately at the regular price. So that's guywindsor.net forward slash buckler, B-U-C-K-L-E-R for 50% off the brand new Medieval Sword and Buckler training course. See you there. I'm here today with Dr. Lynette Nussbacher, who is a strategy consultant and whose work has included being a logistics officer in the Canadian Armed Forces, a writer of books such as Bannockburn 1314, a lecturer at Reading University, the senior intelligence advisor to the UK Government Cabinet Office, and I'm not making this up, as well as being a TV presenter in various military history shows, and she now runs a management consultant company. Although she's also, and of course, most importantly, from our perspective, a historical martial arts instructor. So, Lynette, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Guy. Um, did I pronounce your name correctly? I forgot to check that before we started. Uh, as far as I could tell, yes. If you've gone off piste a little on the name, uh, you've not gone far. <laughs> okay, marvellous. So, uh, whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in the Surrey Hills. I live in a, uh, a very small, very pretty village that is nestled between two fascinating ridges of English geography. And we're shielded from harsh weather. And, uh, yeah, and, and I, uh, I, I live in a village that is still owned by the feudal overlord who is, uh, whose family has owned it since 1485. And I'm pleased to report that they're lovely people. Okay. And uh, I, I okay. swallow the resentment of my ancestors who held this very fief of the crown before 1485 and who clearly backed the wrong horse in the Wars of the Roses. You're kidding. I am not. Oh, my God. So, so, basic, so basically, you were, your family was on the wrong side at Bosworth Field. Correct. Exactly right. So the uh, the butlers, wow. uh, the butler earls okay. of Ormond, used to use this as their near London base, and uh, and they 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 went their own way. Okay. And Henry Tudor was as he was in all things utterly ruthless. So the Bray family owns uh, owns my house, and uh, and I am uh, the the first wave of revenge coming from the mid fifteenth century. <laughs> okay. So after 500 years, you want your land back? Well, I, I just want to make sure that my garden is, uh, is, is of appropriate size and, uh, and health. That's all I care about. I'm a reasonable woman. <laughs> okay. 
Fair enough. Um, but you're, I was under the impression you were Canadian. I am so Canadian. born in Canada? Uh, I was not. I was born in the United States. Boris Johnson and I have that in common. We're uh, oh, okay. uh, both born in the US, right. um, but not especially American. Uh, and I'm Canadian. I went to the University of Toronto, where I, I studied medieval history and mm-hmm. uh, economic history. And uh, as you noted earlier, I, I served in the Canadian Armed Forces for a while. And uh, people mistake my accent for okay. a lot of uh, things, and uh, sometimes Northern Irish. So, uh, so Canadian is always uh, is always the safest bet. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, okay, there's a story somewhere between joining the Canadian Armed Forces and ending up in the British Cabinet Office, um, and the internet doesn't tell me much about those intervening steps. So, would you care to fill them in? Yeah, I, I was a, um, a logistics officer, a finance and logistics officer in the Canadian Forces in the Army, uh, although at the time we were really not meant to call it the Canadian Army. Uh, that's changed. And I uh, started out as um, an officer in the 48th Highlanders of Canada, a, uh, a regiment of, of ancient history and, uh, and tremendous pride. And uh, if you get me in just the right mood, I can start reciting battle honours uh, of the, of the uh, 48th Highlanders of Canada for you. And um, I was commissioned into the 48th about 100 years after the regiment was founded. And I had a couple of really, really wonderful years with uh, a really wonderful, uh, wonderful battalion. Um, and the Canadian Army sent me off to, uh, to Kingston, to Royal Military College. And I did a war studies degree there. Uh, a master's degree in war studies, and it was a, an absolutely splendid program, which had uh, civilians, which had military people, which had a strong distance learning component, which it which it still has. And um, while I was there, I rebadged from the uh, Canadian Forces Logistics branch into the Intelligence branch. And um, I was uh, an intelligence officer for many years. My total length of service to the Queen was about 22 years. Uh, from uh, St. Andrew's wow. Day of 1992 to uh, roughly October of, uh, of 2014. And uh, when I decided to do my doctorate, when I finished my master's degree, I came over to the UK to do it. And I went to Oxford and I, I read uh, history there, and I got a DPhil, uh, which was a, uh, a marvelous experience, which I highly recommend to everyone. And um, while I was doing it, I was spending my summers going over to, uh, to Canada and doing army courses and being a reservist. And in 2000, when it was clear that I was going to stay in the UK, I transferred my commission to the British Army. So I went from the Canadian Forces Intelligence Branch to the British Army Intelligence Corps and changed a, a, a dark green beret yeah, I, for I a, a light green beret. The, the Commonwealth uh, Armed Forces I didn't know you could are, just switch uh, from... Mm, the Commonwealth Armed Forces are really good at verifying former service and uh, getting people from, uh, from one Commonwealth Army to another. Uh, easier for some than others, but uh, the, the flow back and forth between... Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK is small but steady. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, so you, uh, yeah, so, so 
uh, sorry, we're talking over each other. Uh, we, uh, in uh, 2000, when I was uh, finishing up my doctorate, still writing up my thesis, I started lecturing at Sandhurst. And uh, it's a civilian post, and there I was, a, uh, at the time, a reserve officer, and there, there were a few reserve officers there uh, who were war studies lecturers. And uh, I think that the academy found it useful for us to have a bit of street cred, that we were not just civvies talking about war that we've read about in books. And um, in, in, uh, in late 99, uh, still a very new lecturer at, at Sandhurst, I went to the, uh, the commandant and I said, well, it's Christmas break. I'm sure there are people in Kosovo who'd quite like to, uh, to spend some time with their families. Uh, can you deploy me there? And uh, General Denaro, Arthur Denaro, wonderful man, um, mad as a, a mad thing, uh, which, which is ideal in a cavalry officer. Uh, he said, yes, yeah, splendid idea. And he got me stuck onto a plane and out to Kosovo for a couple of months. And so I had a nice short tour in Kosovo as a, a brigade watchkeeper uh, working the ops desk uh, for 19 Brigade. And uh, so I got a bit of operational experience as well. Although I'm far from a rufty tufty soldier, my my Iraq War experience, and I, I was mobilized uh, in 2003 for the Iraq War. Um, my Iraq War experience was very much in the rear with the gear. Uh, so I was uh, head of counter uh, counterintelligence and uh, counterterrorism for the British Army in Germany, as it was. Uh, so I was in British forces Germany. I was spending euros. I was, uh, thank goodness, spending a bit of time with my young family, which my, my friends and colleagues who were out in Iraq did not have the opportunity to do. Um, and it was, uh, it was not terribly satisfying to, uh, to be that far in the rear with the gear. But it was, it was wise, I think, for, uh, for the army to do that. That is, we didn't know how difficult or not the first phases of the Iraq war were going to be. And we, the British Army, were really well prepared for it to go very badly. And that's right. It's right to prepare for, for rough case scenarios. So it should be. Yeah. So um, I and a lot of my, uh, my soldiers, uh, Intercorps reservists, were deployed to Germany to do uh, backfill for the soldiers who had been deployed from the British forces in Germany out to Iraq and to do their jobs, because their jobs still needed doing. And that's all very, very, uh, very sound and sensible. But also, had it gone very badly uh, for the, uh, the, the Gulf II coalition in 2003, of course, we would have uh, been battle casualty replacements. Um, so I have right. some uh, operational experience. I have some uh, intelligence analysis experience. And... Um, and there I was working for UK government uh, in the Ministry of Defence. And, uh, you know, you, you, you teach um, at a place like Sandhurst for five years. Uh, it's brilliant. By year eight, which it was, by my eighth year there, uh, I was ready for a change. And uh, the Cabinet Office, which is where a lot of UK intelligence assessment capability is based, was coming to terms with the Butler report. And Robin Butler, uh, who was a, a former cabinet secretary, wrote a report on the intelligence assessment around the Iraq war. And he had some pretty pointed critiques. And one of the things he said we needed was more devil's advocacy. We needed 
to red team our intelligence analysis. Mm. We needed to uh, to take skeptical views of it. And I was was very good at being skeptical. And uh, so they took me on board as um, originally my title was senior intelligence advisor. And I met my American opposite number, and uh, he was called the devil's advocate for the Defense Intelligence Agency. And I said, the devil's advocate, that is the job title I want. So I, um, I, I got my Perfect. job title changed. I said, can I be called the devil's advocate? And uh, my boss, Sir Alex Allen, who is a, a lovely man, um, uh, thought about it for a moment. And he said, yes, just don't put it on a business card that you use in a part of the world where devil's advocate will get you killed. Uh, advice I, I, I took on board. Okay. So for a number of years, I worked for the Joint Intelligence Committee. It is good advice. Uh, and I brought papers to the Joint Intelligence Committee uh, on, um, on uh, subjects that uh, were related to um, uh, analytical integrity and making sure that the intelligence we have is not biased. And of course, it's very hard because humans are very biased. And after a couple of years of that, I started a unit which is called the Strategic Horizons Unit, which was a, uh, a corner, small corner of the intelligence co uh, correction of the intelligence apparatus in the UK that took a strategic forward look. And futures as a profession is is well established. There are companies. Shell does a lot of strategic futures work, and um, there were some very bright people in number 10, who were very keen to see UK um, national security strategy backed up with structured strategy work. And there's me, you know, I, I could talk your ear off about Clausewitz. I, I have very clear ideas on strategy. I've got clear ideas on structured strategy. And I'm really uh, somebody who is, um, who's not wedded to any particular corner of the intelligence establishment, right? I, at the time, I was a, a combat in major. Uh, I was I had nothing to do with defense intelligence in Whitehall. I had nothing to do with the security services. And, uh, and so taking an objective look at the future of national security was something that I was ideally positioned to do. And look, there I was already working in the cabinet office. So uh, I continued my loan period in the cabinet office doing, um, doing those strategic futures projects and uh, uh, about which I can tell you approximately nothing. But it was, uh, it was great fun, very interesting. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, we don't want to get MI5 on our backs for this. We absolutely do not. So that, that, that is my trajectory. That takes so, me from, from the Canadian forces to the UK cabinet office. Wow. And, and where do the swords come in? Where do the well, swords are at the root of everything, of course. I, um, of I course, started always. doing, uh, doing historical fencing. Well, I, I used to do uh, armored combat in the SCA, uh, Society for Creative Anachronism. Uh, and I started that when I was 17. And, uh, I was, reaching for more historicity in what I did. And I was finding that the armored combat wasn't, uh, wasn't as satisfying after 10 years uh, as, as I'd hoped. So in the early 90s, um, I and a few friends started a historical combat workshop. And one of my friends was Jeremy Graham. Um, and one of my friends was Jeff Forgang. 
And I'm guessing that your listenership guy will recognize Jeff Forgang's name pretty readily. Um, and this was a time when so Jeff they was... Damn shit, dude. <laughs> that they damn You're right. Jeff was just getting his hands on uh, 133, on the Tower Fechtbuch. And um, we were just starting to see the, uh, the opportunities to start analyzing um, historical documents, including in the, in the original. And we were all at University of Toronto at the time. I was on staff, uh, Jeremy was on staff, and uh, um, uh, Jeff was doing projects for the uh, Middle English Dictionary. And we got together with the three Elizabethan fencing manuals book, uh, Turner and Soper. And we oh, read, yes, we read Silver, book. we read Saviolo, and we read Degrassi. And from Silver, we got the impression he was a bit of a bullshit artist. And I, I still don't really view George Silver as, uh, as a trustworthy source for anything. He's very happy to talk about how his buddies would go out and beat Saviolo's students up in the streets. But I, George Silver does not impress me. Um, a patriotic Englishman, to be sure. But he's a bit of a barroom bore, to my mind. Um, so we uh, we took a little bit out of silver, and okay. I've still got some uh, some scars from f uh, doing silver using sharps uh, in an injudicious way. Um, Saviolo we found overly complex. Uh, I think we considered our ourselves bears of very little brain, and we needed something simple. And Giacomo de Grassi is so simple and so straightforward and so downright to... Uh, to use a, uh, a silver term, that uh, we spent a couple of years and we, we attracted a few other students to join us. And, um, and, and we fenced Degrassi in, uh, in a dance studio in Harthouse at the University of Toronto for a couple of years. And, you know, this was 1991 or so, there was something somewhere called WMA. Um, and... Um, uh, and I knew Brian Price at the time uh, through his uh, through his then wife. So uh, uh, what was becoming Chivalry Bookshelf was something was something we knew, and uh, and a few of my friends, notably Steve Mulberger, who had mentored me in, in armored combat, uh, was a prolific author for Chivalry Bookshelf. But there wasn't uh, a community we were especially aware of at the time, and uh, when we all went our separate ways, uh, Jeff to uh, uh, to Ann Arbor, uh, to the University of Michigan, and, and I went uh, to Kingston to the Royal Military College. Um, we uh, we didn't really keep up with what was becoming HEMA around us. I always say HEMA rather than HEMA, for which I apologize, but hmm. it's a uh, it's ingrained in my mind. So uh, so that was where that the offensive started for us. Oh, just HEMA. <laughs> HMA, historical martial HMA. arts. Yeah. There you go. There I, you I go. find the European redundant. Well, and, and I, I Sorry, yeah, we're having that. some technical troubles. There's a delay in the... Mm. Um, there's a delay in the back and forth. So when there's a pause for me to enter into, then you, you haven't heard... Uh, yeah, so we're, we're getting some uh, connectivity issues, I think. Um, so I'll just have to try and edit out the awkward pauses. <laughs> Feel free. Uh, so I'll, I'll, okay, I'll just try sorry, to repeat on. when we do crap, run yeah. into each other. 
No, I think I think you're right about the um, about historical martial arts at the time. Uh, and I remember when I first encountered the term historical European martial arts, and it was very clear that we had to find we had to find a way of saying that we're not doing wushu, we're not doing kun tao, we're not doing gung fu. Um, it's martial arts, but it's not the martial arts you're thinking of. And there was there was a real need to differentiate. Um, Western martial arts tried to do that. Historical European martial arts tried to do that. And now we are in a community with uh, historical African martial arts and um, and and martial arts as a uh, an Asian set of disciplines is is different from what it was. There's a there's a, a far more it's a far more rounded thing. You know, I, I don't think anybody is going to think that we're Steven Seagal wannabes now if we talk about ourselves as historical martial artists. Yeah, definitely. And the I, I, I remember when we started out doing this in the 90s in, in mm. my club in Edinburgh, and it was, uh, we called it historical fencing or historical swordsmanship back then. Mm. Um, and then... WA May came out and then HEMA became a thing and, and so it went from there. Um, but actually, listeners to the show should definitely recognise Jeffrey Forgang's name because several other people have mentioned him and you know, he's produced all these amazing books and translations and what have you. But the reason that most listeners will have heard of him is because every time his name comes up, I flinch. Because for my PhD, he was the examiner for my first fiver. And he absolutely correctly tore me a new one. Very politely, but just, I came, I came out of that an absolute wreck. <laughs> Took me months to recover. Um, but he was absolutely right. And, you know, so I, I did the extra work and sorted things out and you know, got through on my second round. But Which, yeah, is, part, so which is, of course, the process. I think most, uh, most listeners have heard, heard that story. Well, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Jeff- yes, precisely. Jeff is uh, Jeff's a wonderful human being and uh, an immensely bright and uh, hardworking scholar, and uh, and also an absolute ruthless bastard with a sword in his hand. Um, I, I know he's doing a lot of jousting now, and I think <laughs> I he's, he's probably a, equally a, a ruthless bastard with a lance. But uh, one of the things that we decided early on was that wearing a fencing mask was uh, taking us away from the historical experience of training as a fencer. And that with a fencing mask, uh, and, and everyone listening, I'm sure will know this, with a fencing mask on, the place you would most like to be hit is the face. It is possibly the best protection you've got on you. And it's very intuitive. From, I'm a, a tremendous fabrous fencer. And I love the fact that as a fabrous fencer, the two things that are in front of me between me and my opponent are the basket of my rapier and the grill of my mask, because, uh, because those are, are, are very well-protected places. But of course, there we were, uh, seeking to uh, replicate the experience of being one of Degrassi's students in the fifteen uh, in the fifteen nineties, and if you pick up pictures of people fencing in the fifteen eighties or fifteen nineties, you will not see a fencing mask on one of them. And that has to change the way you drill. It has to change the way you do free play. It has to change the way you train. And uh, because nobody's going to want to lose an eye uh, at the uh, at the gym of an evening. 
So, uh, so one of the things we did was we, uh, we looked at some of these illustrations and we saw what was called a foil uh, in the 16th century. We saw these, uh, what looked like a medium-sized rapier with a great big button on the end of it. And uh, clearly, these were buttons that were big enough that they weren't going to go into your eye socket. And uh, it, it's not possible from the engravings to get a clear idea of what they are. And I, for one, don't know of any surviving uh, 16th century foils, that is, um, these training weapons. Uh, I'd love to see one if I could. But what uh, Jeff Forgang suggested we do was take a champagne cork and strap a 2P coin to the end of it, wrap it up in a nice piece of cloth so it didn't look like a champagne cork with a 2P coin strapped on it, and we stuck those onto the ends of our rapiers. And that made them a little bit tip-heavy, but because at the time the simulators we were using were from, I guess, James the Just or, or Darkwood, two of the, the big suppliers at the time, they were not yet making 115 centimeter rapiers so we've got a 30, 30, uh, you know, 36 or 37 inch, and here I am mixing my inches and centimeters, which is a very Canadian thing to do. Um, we, we've got um, you know, 80 or 90 centimeter rapiers, but looking back, they handled a lot like my 115 centimeter darkwood or my 115 centimeter um, balefire handles today. So it was odd, but it meant we could fence without masks and uh, uh, reasonably safely. And uh, I think we were doing a little bit to replicate that, uh, that training experience from the South Bank uh, in, uh, in the 1590s. Yeah, it's a very interesting sort of balance you have to strike because if you have a fencing mask, then you can really go for the face and then you learn how to deal with someone who's really going for your face. Mm -hmm. Without the fencing mask, your training partner is unlikely to really go for your face. But there is a saying, um, could be apocryphal, from like the 18th century, you can tell a fencing master by the fact that he's got one eye and no front teeth. And there's a story of, I think it was Harry Angelo giving a lesson, and, or maybe it was his father, and the kind of the large kind of champagne cork-sized button on the end mm. went into his mouth some way down his throat and then came out again. <laughs> so, yeah, I, 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 masks were pretty quickly adopted after they were invented because they're really helpful. But, but yes, there's, there's no way to, there's, there's no substitute for the, I don't know, the experience of, not that I'm recommending it to everyone listening, but there's no substitute for the experience of fencing without masks. It does change everything. It does. And, and we have to be mindful as scholars of historical fencing that what we are seeking to recreate is something that was done on you know, sandy floorboards in, uh, in Paris Garden in London or in mucky streets of the back streets of, uh, uh, of Venice by people who trained without, uh, without face protection. And, uh, and that changes things. It really does. Yeah, I think there's a book in there somewhere. I think you should write it. I, I, I shall make a note. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
the experience. Of <laughs> well, having... I, I, I don't, I don't think I. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I could, I could rather. But, but, but these these contexts in which fencing occurred, they do change absolutely everything about what you're doing. Like I'm currently working on 133, and it's instructive to think that you know one of the one of the ways that sort of apprentices or teenagers and what have you blew off steam in the old days was they would go and fight their mates with swords and bucklers and these are sharp swords right Mm. and if that was if that was resulting in people being blinded and maimed and dying all the time they wouldn't have done it because you know it would ruin their professional you know i mean they would have done it a little the risk has to be there it's like hot rodding or or um what do you call it? You know, the boy racers who run, rush around in their sports cars and and pulling handbrake turns in places where they shouldn't. It's I think it's the same sort of thing. And there's there's fencing when you're just trying to kill the person who's in front of you, and there's fencing when you're trying to put on a decent display, and there's fencing when you're basically playing chicken with your mates in a way. Hmm. Um, and all of those all of those things can be represented or may be present as intended context for the art that's being represented in the source that you're working with. And it's it's interesting to see when and why you might do which. It's a really useful point. Um, when Stephen Ambrose was doing um, interviews with uh, people who were invading France for D-Day, the United States chose to use very young soldiers, uh, in, to some extent in contrast with the British and Canadian armies. And they did that because young soldiers, they may not be experienced, they, they had not been in Italy fighting or North Africa fighting, they used fresh soldiers who were very physically fit, which a young soldier often is, but also 18-year-olds had no sense of their own mortality. And officers uh, in 1944 were, were, were getting up on a, in a soapbox, were about to invade France, look to your right, look to your left, um, we're going to take 50% casualties on the beach. And all of those young men looked to their right and looked to their left and said, you poor bastards, because I'm immortal. So it, <laughs> it sucks to be yes. you, because tomorrow you're going to be face down on a beach in France. And of course, they were often right. But uh, we also know, when we look at the career of somebody uh, we, who, who we know well, like Salvatore Fabris, we, we know that Salvatore Fabris was an active fencing instructor uh, until rather late in life. And I'm perfectly willing to accept that Sally Fabris at 18 was doing reckless stuff with sharps. Just as I, uh, rather older than 18, when I was 26, 27, I was doing reckless stuff with sharps. But, you know, um, I, 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 I prize that, that kind of valiant stupidity. But in his 50s and in his 60s, I will bet that he was not endangering his eyeballs and he was not uh, risking um, dying slowly and horribly of peritonitis. I mean, one of the things that we know about uh, the pre-penicillin era is that a minor cut could result in slow, horrible death by Staphylococcus aureus infection and, uh, or, or, or indeed other infections. Um, we have evidence of people who had a scratch from a rose thorn 
uh, and died slowly and horribly over, uh, over a period of weeks. And once you've witnessed that, you are a different fencer and you assess risk differently. I mean, for me, as a, as a middle-aged woman who, who fences a lot, getting a bit of a thump on the chest protector or getting a bit of a thump on the gorget is, um, uh, is, is, uh, is, is pretty low risk. Um, but I have other dreads in my fencing life. I dread the career-ending knee injury. Um, I dread that moment when mm. the, uh, the ligament goes and it's never going to be the same as it was because uh, a knee ligament injury at, um, uh, you know, at 54 is, uh, is not going to heal the way a knee ligament injury uh, does at, uh, at 24. So, so uh, we do preserve, I think, some of the, uh, the assessment of risk uh, and the change in the way we assess risk as we go older. Uh, grow older. So, so I think that's going to have to be a, a chapter in the experience of fencing in the 16th and 17th century by Lynette Nussbacher. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and honestly, listeners, when that book comes out, you can all thank me and go and buy it. Yes, um, indeed. Yeah, but to, to your point, it's, it's also worth, worth remembering that Fabris was teaching Christian IV, King of Denmark, mm -hmm. right? And if he blinded the king, that would not have done much good for his career. So they, yeah. they would, they would, they were handling this risk, and most people didn't end up seriously injured or blinded. Most people went through their their fencing life pretty much uninjured. Well, we when we when we see people grinding an axe for fencing masters, for instance, when the uh, the city of London authorities are grinding an axe for fencing masters. They do not say that fencing masters, they say fencing masters cause brawling, but they don't talk about fencing masters uh, causing maiming and serious injury. And uh, brawling may have resulted in, exactly. in, uh, in maiming and serious injury, but it is, uh, that is clearly not part of that perception. And you're right, Fabris was teaching the king, and not only would that have meant that he had to create an environment in which the king of Denmark is safe to train as a fencer, uh, and of course I'm sure he won an awful lot of bouts in free play at the weekend uh, because he was king, but there is also the fact that if King Christian didn't feel like he was being given a serious workout, and if he didn't feel like he was doing, uh, doing well in free play with the courtiers, then Sally Fabris would have been out on his ear and on his way back to, uh, back to Italy. So there had to have been realism, there had to have been athleticism, there had to have been a genuine sense of jeopardy, a genuine sense of progression in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, well, the art of arms, if not the profession of arms. Well, no, and it was the profession of arms, because of course, uh, fencing was a military skill for the King of Denmark, and for anyone else who was employing a, um, a fencing master. We have this, um, I, I, in the HEMA world, uh, and also in, in the SCA, which is not far, I sometimes hear fencing referred to as recreating the civilian art of swordsmanship. And for me, as someone with a doctorate in 17th, 17th century history, the idea that there is such a thing as a civilian 
in the sense of, of you know, somebody who what uses a skinny sword instead of a fat sword, who is is not going to be uh, murdered in the, the sack of Magdeburg. Who is the civilian in this period, right? Uh, the idea that we now have, you know, post-Geneva, uh, post-Red Cross, post-First World War, the idea of civilians means nothing to a 16th or 17th century uh, sword wielder. Uh, so this was this was mill skills uh, for the king of Denmark. It was mill skills for the gentleman who paid uh, Giacomo de Grassi uh, to train them in London, and it was mill skills for George Silver. And it, yeah, Silver goes on about how you know it must be valuable in service of the prince as well as in service of your own honor, but. Um, I think that even in the 18th century, when we have, I think it was Godfrey who wrote that the um, small sword is the call of honor and the back sword is the call of duty. So he's clearly distinguishing between small sword fencing, which is for private dueling, and the back sword, which is for the art, which is for military service. But it's effectively the same system, just adapted towards one weapon or towards the other. So the point of it is your small sword stuff should make your back sword stuff better and vice versa. So it's not it's 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 the same art just applied to this context or to that context rather than it being a strict division between this is a military thing and soldiers do it and this is a civilian thing and civilians do it. Quite. And and the spadroon is is there uh, to be carried on the field, and the um, uh, and mm. although the backsword, well, you know, we see this in Angelo, where you've got um, whatever it is, 150 pages of small sword, and then you've got the supplement on Scottish backsword because uh, because it, it it's it, it's in the news, right? Uh, and you've got to be able to pick up a backsword, but uh, but uh, the idea of well. The idea that they're separate skills is absolutely given the lie by the fact that Angelo puts ten plates or whatever it is of uh, of backsword and absolutely no word on how to actually use the backsword. There is clearly not uh, in his mind a difference in, uh, in 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 the way you use it, which says a lot about how he was using his his small sword as well. And. What I love, and here's me being a little bit of a violence in cinema buff, when you see that excellent film of Rob Roy with um, Liam Neeson, the oh, climactic God, so fight, yeah. the climactic fight between him and Tim Roth, superb, is Tim Roth fencing the first 150 pages of Angelo, and Liam Neeson fencing the the, the plates at the back with the Highland uh, Highland backsword or Highland broadsword. And as you say, it is absolutely superb. Yeah, it's, it's probably one of the, I think it's maybe my favourite sword fight on screen. It's not least because also it, they get the characters right, right? And the way they're fencing is a perfect representation of the character they've shown us over the previous two hours of the film. Correct. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful, uh, yes. Uh, so and, and fight, we shall find it. We shall find it online and stick it in the show notes. Absolutely, please do. Uh, um, fight choreography ought to be think, all about developing Holmes, the character. It was. It was indeed. It was. Absolutely. Um, okay, so um, we could carry on talking about history of fencing for a while. 
Um, we may even come back to it, but I have a, I have the, one of the reasons I wanted you on the show. I didn't actually know quite what a historical fencing geek you really were. I use the fact that you're into historical fencing as a kind of pretext to get you on the show because I really wanted to interview someone who, who does strategy for a living because mm. that is fascinating to, I mean, it should be fascinating to anyone who fences, but, um, so let's, I, I have a question here. Let me, let me. Uh, ask it so your current job description is strategist and devil's advocate so what exactly does that entail tell us all about strategy Linda. you know you want to i know i want to um there are a lot of people who want to be strategic uh certainly in the commercial world and there are a lot of people some of them very dear friends of mine who um who are strategy directors for, for businesses, indeed for businesses of significant size. And over and over again, when I talk to them about their jobs, they express a wistful desire to practice strategy, and they never, they never do, or they rarely do. Their lives are taken up with, um, with firefighting, corporate firefighting. And there's a reason for that. In the corporate world, the only person who can really make strategy is a chief executive. Board can give strategic guidance. A chief executive can make strategy. And then they appoint a strategy director to, uh, to do it for them, to delegate that responsibility. And anybody who a chief executive appoints to a strategy director job is someone they trust implicitly. And that person then becomes the chief exec's troubleshooter. And the strategy gets pushed back and, uh, and it doesn't happen. And um, that's something I observe when dealing with the corporate world. And it's not far off what I observed in UK government. When the, uh, the first UK national security strategy was published, uh, I think it was 2008, uh, the, the response from number 10 was to chuck it back at them and say, show again, uh, which I apologize, it's, it's a British army term. It was, uh, do that over again because you did not do it right the first time. And when the, uh, the people in the, in, um, there wasn't even a national security secretary at the time, when the people in the cabinet office said, what did we do wrong? They said, you didn't do anything right. You didn't uh, consider the strategic context. You didn't start with horizon scanning and scenario development. All you did was say a bunch of stuff about the world situation and expected us here in number 10 to buy that because you think we're political peasants over here in number 10. I'm paraphrasing here. And uh, so the cabinet office was put in the awkward position of having to apply structured strategy. And it was kind of serendipitous that there uh, in, in the building at the time, uh, holding a, a very high-level clearance and doing interesting intelligence assessment work was me, and I just happened to know a, a lot about structured strategy. When I was at Royal Military College in Canada, we had a course that we did, I guess a module is what it would be called here, um, called the Dead Germans. And it was a, uh, it was not all Germans, um, although they were mostly dead, and we went really in depth at a postgraduate level into Clausewitz and into Germany and, uh, and into Giulio Due 
and we looked at all of the people who have chapters and makers of modern strategy. Uh, we looked at uh, their writing and their context and their ideas. And, uh, and in the first instance, that meant that I had spent a lot more time than a lot of other people really trying to understand Clausewitz in particular. And I'm very, very, I'm very Clausewitzian, so I, I, I hold him out above all those other strategists I named. And then, uh, when I started teaching at Sandhurst, one of the things that we used to teach the officer cadets, and one of the things we used to teach in junior division of staff college to the, uh, to the captains in the British Army, was not just how to fight, uh, but why we do what we do when we fight. And of course, the question, why do we do what we do when we fight, is a strategy question. Uh, why do we do anything? Why do we get out of bed in the morning and confront the enemy and risk our lives? Uh, the answer to all of that has to be strategy. That is, uh, there is a, uh, a set of strategic imperatives that are part of government policy. Governments have many ways of achieving policy. There are many categories of strategy, but if they use armed force to achieve their policy, then they are using military strategy, naval strategy, uh, air strategy. Um, it can contribute to the idea of, uh, of geostrategy, which Halford Mackinder wrote about, uh, which is uh, strategy devoted to understanding uh, geography and, uh, and space. But when you come right down to it, you've no business using armed force in service of the state unless you understand uh, how this is going to achieve policy aims. And coordinating ends and means, uh, that is the aims of the state, the policy aims of the state, and the means of achieving it, uh, that is what strategy is about. And br the British government has an uneasy relationship with strategy. And uh, so when uh, a couple of very bright people in number 10 said, start using structured strategy methods and do this again. Um, I put my hand up and said, I would dearly love to do that. And so I started, as I said earlier, I started the Strategic Horizons Unit. Uh, when I left government um, in, uh, in 2010, one of the things that I found significant was that everyone in the United Kingdom and everyone in North America who was thinking seriously about uh, cybersecurity um, was thinking about it in a technical way, uh, was thinking about it in a, uh, uh, an operational way, but, but almost nobody was thinking about it in a strategic way. There's a woman called Ann Bader, an American woman, uh, who was doing some very good work on strategy uh, and cybersecurity. And, uh, and to this day, she has a, a band of, of devoted followers who, uh, who, who worship the ground she walks on. But, but everyone was taking a view of cybersecurity that said we'll protect government systems. Uh, they were taking a view of cybersecurity that said we will uh, uh, perhaps seek to protect critical national infrastructure. But these were all operational responses. There wasn't a strategic approach. 
and uh, and I thought that people would want a strategic approach. So I started a consultancy to do that. So I started a strategy consultancy, a boutique strategy consultancy. And I was astonished that uh, there are branding strategists out there. There are consultancies that, that do a bit of strategy here and there. But I was not in a crowded room uh, when I started doing strategy. Uh, I also discovered that nobody wanted cybersecurity strategy at the time. So I, I branched out into other areas of strategy. But, you know, strategy is a uh, strategy is a way of thinking. It's a way of operating. It's a way of aligning ends and means. And the same strategic principles that apply in a national security environment apply in a corporate environment. The stakes are different. Uh, the people are different. Uh, the, uh, the, the power structures and the levers of power are different. But if you want to achieve your aims at the highest level, the way to do it is to make strategy. And um, there are a lot of people who will, uh, who will sell you a strategy. They'll sell you a text. They'll sell you a, a glossy publication with lots of nice pictures and lots of nice graphs, and, that will, and, and it will say it's a strategy on the cover. And uh, a lot of bookshelves are filled with these. A lot of coffee tables are covered with these. But that, that is not strategy. That's not making strategy. That is uh, writing about strategy, and I respect that. Uh, there are customers for that. No problem getting customers for that. But when we look at how governments and companies try to uh, achieve their aims, they often do it based on day-to-day uh, -day questions, uh, month-to-month and quarter-to-quarter -quarter questions. Uh, over the last few years, I have been looking at strategic questions for, for clients, especially for very brainy clients, I'm pleased to say. And I, I, I started doing Brexit strategy in 2016, uh, in February of 2016. And uh, I did it for, uh, for Pinsent Masons, uh, the, uh, the City of London law firm. And I started with uh, an American client doing uh, Trump strategy in April of 2016. And in, uh, in February of uh, 2020, I started doing uh, pandemic strategy and post-pandemic planning. Uh, and taking a strategic view of these things requires you to take uh, a cold, hard view of the future. It requires you to, to conduct realistic scenario development. And uh, not everyone is capable of making strategy. Not every company is capable of acting strategically. But there are some who can, and it's great to work with them. So that's what I do. Do you know what? I wish I could afford to hire you to talk strategy for my company. That would be great. Because, yeah, it, it's... Like, I get this... I, I'm also sort of involved in the sort of self-publishing world and, and what have mm. you. And the it's very often the case that particularly beginners entering the field um, confuse a specific tactic with a an actual strategy. So, for example, like publishing a book is usually a tactic, but deciding, okay, I need to create this... I want basically let's say I want to have loads of people reading my books, which is actually true for me. So what I need to do is obviously produce a book and then advertise it. Well, no, that's not going to do it. So what I need to do is do all these various reputational building things so that when the book comes out, people notice it and then have some kind of long range goal for what the book is supposed to do for my 
career. So for example, I have friends in academia who what they need is to get a book out published by the one of these four or five academic publishers because if they publish it themselves they'll get it won't work at all because what they need out of that book is reputation and prestige which will help them get the next job whereas the same book published by somebody who is independent what they need to make out of that book is money and the approach is completely different so having that kind of long-range goal sort of determines the tactics we're going to use to get there. But if we could just bring this to fencing a little mm. bit. Um, I mean, generally speaking, the strategy in a fencing match is um, hit your opponent without getting hit. That's like it. But there's... I, I would like to hear your take on it because I think you could probably flesh that out a bit. But there's a sense in which... Fencing is a is a tactical rather than strategic game, um, and you know since we've come back uh, to uh, actually putting our fencing kit on, one of the things I've been teaching recently has been tactics, and I have always found tactics to be a weak spot in fencing training, um, and. I took a tournament once, um, it was uh, the last but one Astolat tournament, where I spent a, uh, an entire pool watching Pim Terminiello like a hawk and making notes. And I spent another entire pool watching Mike Prendergast uh, like a hawk and making notes. And I, and I gave them both debriefs afterwards because... I know how hard it is to understand your own fencing uh, style. And indeed, what I was looking at for them was tactics. When the, uh, when the ref says fence, what's the first thing they do? What's the second thing they do? What's the third thing they do? How do they respond to different actions on the parts of their opponents? And I largely ignored the opponents and largely focused on, on the one person. Um, which is something you can do when you're judging in a HEMA environment, right? You watch, you watch one person like a hawk, especially if there are plenty of judges, and, uh, which is where I got the idea. And um, I was very interested in their in-bout tactics, and that is, is one of the things that I, I like to teach. Um, but that's, as you say, that is, uh, the strategy is to stick the pointy end in, in, the, uh, in the opponent without getting stuck yourself, and all of, all of what I'm talking about are, are tactics uh, in achieving that goal. But it is possible, for instance, to take a strategic approach, <clears throat> uh, to, take a strategic approach to, um, uh, to a tournament. Uh, when we decide what events we're putting in for, we are to some extent making strategic decisions. When we decide, and, and people who fence at a high level uh, need to be not only uh, fencing but judging. And, uh, and that means deciding what you're going to fence and what you're going to judge is to some extent a strategic decision. Nobody in HEMA is, is in HEMA for mercenary reasons. We're not there because there's going to be a big scholarship. We're not there to, pray, to play pro sports. We are not there because... And no, no, nobody's there because their parents made them. Uh, and my uh, my daughter Abigail, who is a, a much better fencer than I am, 
can can uh, can tell you that she's there because she wants to be and not because I made her. And my daughter Matilde will tell you that she's not fencing because she is uh, is not interested in doing what I want. So uh, nobody fences in Hema because somebody made them. Nobody fences in Hema because it's the way to athletic heroism at a school, right? Uh, so why do we do it? We do it because we have certain aims in mind, uh, policy aims. There was a time, you know, I, I fenced, as I told you earlier, in the early 90s. I stopped fencing the last time I taught in the 90s was uh, 1996, 97, uh, teaching fencing in the SCA in, uh, in Ontario. And then I put it down for a while, for years. Um, and I did my doctorate and all that because it's, it's no fun doing historical stuff uh, for pleasure when it's also what you're doing for your day job, I found. Uh, but when I started fencing again, I was looking for fitness. I was looking for fun. And I was balancing in my mind, do I want to go back to uh, historical fencing? Do I want to go to a, a club and do modern fencing? Do I want to go and do roller derby? Because roller derby is the kind of thing that queer women like me do a lot, and it's physical and it's fitness oriented. Um, and uh, in the end, I decided to go back home uh, to what I wanted to do. So that's a strategic decision. Uh, when we approach our training and preparation, we have strategic decisions to make. Uh, Goal setting, which is something that not everybody does, but goal setting and engaging with, with coaching or even with coaches uh, requires us to understand why we're doing what we're doing. Um, understanding how we approach free play in our training regime requires us to understand strategy. And those are all individual fencer strategy points. We're all there to achieve certain goals. We don't know, we're not always mindful of them, but that's why we're there. Even if it's just to have fun, which is of course the best reason to, uh, to be uh, doing historical fencing. But one of the places where I think strategy is very important is at the school level. We, we make our own syllabus. We decide what we are going to teach when we, when we teach fencing and the kind of training we do uh, will dictate uh, who we fence with and how we fence. I train at School of the Sword. School of the Sword is a school which, as long as I've fought there, has, for instance, been a light touch school. It's a school where people don't hit hard. And that, for me, as a, as a woman of a certain age, I quite like the idea of seeking to fence with exquisite control rather than to, uh, to, to be out there pelting away with, uh, with the edge of my weapon. Um, I, like the, uh, I, I like going off to, uh, uh, to uh, Scandinavia. I like going to Sweden and, and getting into a bit of rough and tumble with uh, much more, uh, much, I would say, more physical, uh, but much more kinetic fencers. But I like that I train week to week at a school that made a strategic decision. We want to be diverse. We want to have uh, men and women fencing together. We want to, uh, to, to achieve excellence with a light touch. And nobody can say that School of the Sword does not win the medals because School of the Sword does win the medals. Uh, but one of the ways we get there 
is by controlling everything we do at the blade, including controlling how hard we hit people. That is a strategic decision. Now, I'm not sure that what I've just been saying yeah, about strategy so is what you're after. There. Well, yeah. Well, honestly, I don't. I don't have an agenda really. Um, I just. I just had a. I had a. Okay. I. I tend not to think things out terribly in depth. What I tend to do is my instinct says, "Okay, I should talk to that person," and then I get in touch and I sort of just let them. Uh, basically, at the end of the conversation, I usually know why my instinct told me to do that. Right. And actually, what my instinct was telling me in this case is that um, after this is this recording is is done, um, we should I should try and book you for a time because I need to talk about my school strategy with you in in depth. So this is actually um, kind of not not a, not a job interview exactly, but um, I don't know a. Uh, it's the reverse. It's like and you're interviewing me as a potential client, perhaps. <laughs> Indeed. How about that? So, I, I, yeah, so, my, so my, my interest in the strategy thing, it's, it's largely because now that listening to you talk about it, it's easier to articulate it. It's, I think that one of the issues I see with my students and with historical martial arts world generally is... Not necessarily a lack of strategy, but a confusion between what is tactics and what is strategy. Hmm. And and so it's like like confusing a a particular set of tactics for a strategy rather than having this long-reaching, overarching, fundamental idea of what it is you're trying to do and then picking your tactics accordingly. Um, So, I mean... If you if you'd get a kind of like riff on the difference between tactics and strategy, I think that would be very helpful for a lot of listeners. Broadly speaking, um, strategy is the way you coordinate ends and means to uh, to achieve policy. Uh, of course, policy is what we say in government, and uh, UK government in particular has tremendous difficulty differentiating policy from strategy. Um, and they certainly don't read enough Clausewitz, the people who uh, who talk about this in UK government. And uh, and I suppose that's something we all have to deal with. I'll, I will give you a real world big picture example. Uh, everything that we did in Afghanistan between uh, 2001 and 2021 uh, involved British forces, American forces, Canadians, Australians, uh, lots of uh, people from non-English speaking countries as well, working hard together to make things happen on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, they, there was poppy eradication. There was um, uh, aid to uh, uh, civilian ministries. There was uh, uh, state building. There were all kinds of things that were going on there. Uh, there was uh, Taliban eradication. There was hard work being done by a lot of people, and all of it was excellent. The difficulty I found was, uh, during, during the period of that war, was that we weren't exactly sure what it was all in aid of. The strategy that we were pursuing was invisible, and it was invisible to everyone. If you asked 10 different British Army officers, why are we there? And if you asked them, interestingly, at 10 different times during the war, the answer would be different each time. So they were all tactically excellent 
but their tactics were not aligned to pursue a strategy. And if you want a, a big picture uh, answer to the question, why did we leave that war without achieving our aims? The answer is we never really understood what our aims were. As you can tell, that particular war is much on my mind now, just as it as it ends and not and not ending happily. Um, so, strategy is the uh, the aim. The uh, correction. Strategy is the process of aligning ends and means, goals and resources, and tactics are the much more mechanistic ways that we achieve strategic aims. Battle is tactical. War is strategic. You win the war at the strategic level by success at the tactical level. One soldier sticking a bayonet into another soldier's guts is the core of tactical action. Killing and destruction is what, uh, is what tactics are about in war. It's not the only thing soldiers do, but it is the core of a soldier's job. That is what armed forces exist for. The ideas of tactics and strategy can be applied elsewhere, but only by analogy to armed force. So when we as fencers simulate the act of killing and destruction, we are, uh, we are training we are simulating, but what we're training for and simulating is the core act of tactics, which is killing and destruction. So a fight is pretty much by definition tactical. Interestingly, in, uh, in 17th century English usage, the term fight and the term battle were used interchangeably. Uh, the Battle of Naseby, as we would call it today, was always called Naseby fight, or something very much like that, uh, during mm. the Civil War when it took place. So fight and battle are tactical. Uh, the logistics of how we ensure that people can fight and win a battle, that takes us, starts to take us, away from the, the core of tactics, away from sticking a bayonet into somebody's guts, and takes us towards the idea of coordinating the, uh, the means to do that. Uh, it starts to take us a little bit above the basics of the tactical, but bringing the bullets and the beans to the boys is tactical logistics. Um, you know, the star major of a company making sure that after a tactical action, there is appropriate resupply. That is tactical, even though it's logistics, even though it's a step away from that bayonet going into somebody's guts. And in armed forces, we often, especially in the British and Commonwealth forces, we seek to connect tactical logistics with the basics of, of tactics. I just said that it's the company star major who is going to make sure that the bullets and the beans go to the boys, who is going to make sure that uh, resupply of ammunition and, uh, and other key things uh, happens right away. The company star major is someone who has done the job of sticking the bullets uh, into, into the weapon. He is a guy who has done the job of sticking the bayonet into the enemy. 
The company Sir Major is a rufty tufty combat soldier, and he's in charge of logistics to ensure that the logistics remain tactical in nature because of his tactical understanding. When we uh, go to make war in faraway places, we start to ask strategic questions about logistics. How do you get uh, tanks from Germany to Afghanistan? Mm, tough call. How do you get tanks from Britain to Afghanistan? Well, the tanks are in Germany, so you, you put them on a boat in Emden and you, you ship them over to Afghanistan and they take them off the boat there. Now we have questions that significantly distance us from the tactical. Uh, what ports can we use and what ports can we not use? If we want to move uh, tanks by rail to Afghanistan from Germany, one of the ways we can do it is put them on a train in Germany and, and send it uh, across Russia and across Kazakhstan uh, and uh, perhaps offload them in Pakistan and send them into Afghanistan. That requires a certain kind of set of relationships, doesn't it? Uh, if we want to have tanks in Afghanistan, and Afghanistan hasn't got a seacoast, we need to get on the phone and talk to Pakistan about it. Is Pakistan happy for us to be uh, uh, on their doorstep in a neighboring country uh, blowing the place up? Interesting question. What will make them happy? Interesting question. So there are strategies uh, that are required here. And this touches on the idea of geostrategy I talked about earlier. When the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in the late 1970s, one of the things that we, uh, that we said at the time was that the Soviets were seeking to make Afghanistan a Soviet satellite as a stepping stone to making Pakistan a Soviet satellite because the Soviet Union wanted a warm water port. And if they were influential in Afghanistan, and if they could Finlandize Pakistan, then perhaps we would see a Soviet naval base uh, in, in Pakistan. And we would see the Soviets getting much stronger in the Indian Ocean. That's geostrategy. It's the strategy of seacoasts and straits and seas. And now of, nowadays, of course, of space. So where in between the Sar Major doing an ammo resupply and the, uh, the, the, uh, the guys in the foreign office and the guys in defense diplomacy at the MOD uh, and, and their American and, and, uh, and global equivalents uh, making sure that the conditions exist for being able to move a tank from here to there, where does the, uh, where does the strategic end and the tactical begin. And in the olden days, and I'll take a broad view of the olden days here, because I'm a fan of George MacDonald Fraser, and he took a broad view of the olden days. In the olden days, you won a war by seeking a single decisive battle of annihilation. You won or lost a war with the single decisive battle of annihilation. Was that always the case? No, but that's the way people thought. That is, that is, the, uh, the classical idea. When I say classical, I mean classical. Arguably, every German general of the 18th, 19th, and 20th century spent his entire career trying to refight the Battle of Cannae in order to achieve 
a decisive victory uh, over the uh, over the enemy. And that decisive victory at the tactical level, what does the word decisive mean? It means the battle which decides, the victory which decides. You would create a victory which caused the enemy no longer to be able to fight. So you are seeking to use tactical action, battle, fighting, sticking a bayonet into somebody's guts to achieve strategic effect. And you are seeking to do it all at once. And it was possible to do that all at once in the olden days. You could fight uh, your Battle of Blenheim. Say again? Bosworth Field. Bosworth Field. One battle. Quite, quite. Uh, So there is one day, one field. We emphasize it when we say Bosworth Field. We, we restrict the geography, don't we, when we, when we restrict it. It's not even the Battle of Market Bosworth. It is the Battle of Bosworth Field, uh, where, as you say, tactical action achieves strategic effect. And right through the 20th century, we saw commanders trying to achieve uh, strategic effect with tactical action. They generally had a pretty clear idea of where the strategic ended and the tactical began because the strategic ended, um, for say Napoleon Bonaparte, the strategic ended um, at the end of his nose or at the end of his fingertips. The strategic was all happening in Napoleon's brain. He did not have a staff as we would now understand it. His staff were uh, people who relayed his commands, who supported him in various ways, but they didn't help him do his thinking. That was a German idea at the time, uh, which was uh, uh, developed in response to how complicated war was getting. But Napoleon was uh, was a military genius, so anything he was doing was strategic. Uh, When he was pursuing the strategy of the central position, that is, putting his army between uh, an enemy's divided army, then he himself was the source of strategy, And even his marshals and generals were making tactical decisions based on uh, strategic direction from Napoleon Bonaparte. So that is very simple. That is where the strategy ends and the tactical begins. Once you're outside of Napoleon's tent, you are tactical. Um, and, uh, And he, of course, was the last person who could do that. He's not the last person who tried, but he was the last person who could do that. When you look at the American Civil War, you see George Brinton McClellan, the Union general, who had been called the young Napoleon uh, as, a, uh, as a young officer before he left the army and became a railroad manager because these skills transfer well. Um, he really thought that he could do what Napoleon did with industrial warfare, and he was wrong. He couldn't, and he failed repeatedly. And um, uh, Bobby Lee... Robert E. Lee, brilliant man, starts to see the uh, the problem of bringing that idea to modern industrial warfare, the idea of the single decisive battle of annihilation. And starting in 1863, Robert Lee tr- tries to uh, uh, to find a new way of of achieving strategic victory, and he, he doesn't succeed, which is probably a good thing. And it's not until the 1920s. Yeah, I, would, I think a lot of my listeners would agree it was a good thing he didn't succeed. Quite. 
<laughs> America would look very different if he had. Well, well, quite possibly. And, uh, and I've got a, a wonderful counterfactual book with uh, uh, a picture of, of a victorious Robert E. Lee on the, uh, on the cover, Alternate Generals, I think it's called. Um, and uh, what I think is important here uh, to bear in mind is that not until the 1920s did people understand that there, that there have to be sophisticated ways in, in a, a modern industrial world to wire the tactical to the strategic. So your question is an apt one, but it's a very difficult one to answer. And the fact that I've just given you a kind of chunky lecture for a while in answer to the question is, uh, is I think, an indication of that. Well, um, very, very useful. And, um, you know, I don't need to ask the easy questions because they're boring. <laughs> it's the go. hard ones that are interesting. There you go. Um, okay. Um, there are a couple of questions that I tend to... Um, Sort of close things up with and the first I think it's going to be quite tricky for you to answer is what is the best idea you haven't acted on? That is an absolute bastard of a question I quite like it um, because uh, it, it uh, You're welcome Yeah it make, makes me scrape the inside of my head you know my, my, my dad once gave me an idea for a uh, significant improvement on the selfie stick which, uh, which had I devoted uh, a couple of years to developing that, might have, uh, might have made me a wealthy woman today. Um, but um, something which uh, I, I struggle with as a, as a strategist, indeed, is the fact that I am often thinking about the future and commercial consequences of, uh, of future action. And so my mind is filled with opportunities that both I and others have identified and then not acted on. And I will give you one example. Um, in about 2012, I realized that um, the uh, 3D printer, as we still call it, although I, I really think we ought to call it the replicator, that the 3D printer uh, is going to be um, and micromanufacture is going to be uh, very important in the years to come. And indeed, the last 10 years has shown that um, a lot of people have brought the 3D printer into their homes uh, in sort of the way that people have sewing machines in their homes. Not everybody has one. It is a bit of a niche hobby, uh, but they are, um, they are something that, that people have in their homes. And I know that a lot of my friends delight in producing custom dice, uh, custom cosplay things, custom um, uh, custom parts. And, and indeed, I say this uh, citing some recreational examples, but I also uh, know a fellow who works over at McLaren. And uh, for 10 years now, they have been uh, 3D printing car parts for high-performance automobiles. And uh, one of the things I said to, uh, uh, said to someone at the time was that there's no reason why we shouldn't expect to see um, uh, car parts no longer stocked going forward. Why should I fill a warehouse with car parts when I can fill a warehouse, uh, perhaps even a, a smaller warehouse with substrate and, uh, and have, a, have a laser printer and just uh, uh, 3D print car parts as required? Why would I want to waste space uh, on storing and securing plastic when I can just make it make it as, as required. 
And uh, so the idea that I had in about 2012 was to, uh, to create a, uh, a street corner shop that would be in every town around the world where you would walk in with uh, uh, a uh, 3D rendering and, uh, and you would walk out uh, an hour or, or uh, uh, indeed 10 minutes later with whatever it is you, you, uh, you had walked in with the 3D rendering of. And, uh, and that, that would, uh, would be the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the wave yeah. of the future. And I did not act on that. And I don't think it is, uh, that, is something that, is that I could act on. That is not what I expected. Well, this is because I'm so very uh, commercially yeah, minded. That's not what I was say. expecting you to say. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And actually, you know, maker spaces do that sort of thing for people now. I mean, we have a maker space here in Ipswich and we have 3D printers. And, you know, people need stuff done. They'll contact their local maker space. And, but I think we haven't quite got to the point where people think of getting something 3D printed as a solution to a problem. I think that's. That's maybe why it's not quite ready yet, but yeah. Uh, but they will. They okay, will. Um, they will. Oh, they will eventually. Yeah. Um, okay. So my last question: uh, Somebody gives you a million pounds or dollars or whatever. It's imaginary money, so stretch the budget as required to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. What would you do with it? If I had a between between say one and ten million uh, bucks or quid or uh, simoleons for the Hammerverse, I would create a risk fund so that businesses that support historical martial arts could uh, uh, could do so better and do so at scale. I think that I would love to see a business like Balefire Blades scaling up. Uh, I would love to see some of the the makers of uh, of, of basic blades like uh, Kvetan and Pike, um, like uh, Castile, uh, be able to both improve their offer, although Castile is pretty swept up, um, and uh, and scale up. So, say I'd like to be able to see Kvetan and Pike. I'd like to see uh, Regeni Peter. I'd like to see Bellfire be able to scale up successfully. I don't mean scale up to the point where the product is ruined or anything. And I would love to see protective equipment, uh, makers of protective equipment scale up. Uh, we have seen in recent years that scaling and really successfully uh, getting into uh, e-commerce has, has been elusive for some businesses. I, uh, I think that Neyman is yeah. instructive. And um, I think that if there were a risk fund that could, um, that could offer some backing to uh, people who wanted to scale, that could offer backing to people who wanted to go from being an amateur to being a pro, uh, I think would be really useful. We have um, we have a lot of bright people who are doing part time kit making. Oh, I'm sure, absolutely, uh, and and uh, and I mean I, I don't have a, an in depth understanding of your business model, but I know that I see you doing a lot of bootstrapping type stuff, uh, and I know I've participated in some of your bootstrapping type stuff, yes. and I know I've got some of your stuff here on on the on the shelf, and. Uh, 
And anybody oh, who's it. bootstrapped a business knows full well that um, that it would be better if they could make uh, riskier decisions, if they could decide to quit the day job, if they could uh, decide to uh, uh, to use better materials. Uh, one of the things that I love about Castile as as a maker is that although they do some uh, some very basic stuff, they also do really nice custom work. And uh, I would love to see the uh, the level of basic stuff raised, and I would love to see the real artists um, pr- be able to uh, to produce. I'd love to see Marco Janelli able to uh, to give direction to a business where he did not have to put his health at risk uh, as a uh, uh, as, as a shop floor uh, shop floor worker. So I think that we are an undercapitalized sport. I think there are advantages to that. Yeah. But I think that ca- helping capitalize the kit aspects, I think, is important. And, and you know, among other things, it would bring prices down. I, I think that uh, seeing Pike and Kvetten's uh, stuff come onto, uh, onto the piste uh, all over Europe and now starting in North America is great. And I think that will bring the, the price of entry-level kit down. And I have no illusions. Much of what I'm seeing is entry-level kit. Uh, and that's fine because the people who will uh, who will be going to Bellfire for their second or third blade will be coming from a sound basis. I think it's a pity that Hanway did not prove to be uh, the, the the promising future of uh, of uh, historical fencing production that 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 I guess ten years ago we thought it, it might be. And and it's a pity that our Kit suppliers are so precarious. You know, one of the bits of advice I had when I picked up a sword again after years away from fencing was um, you should have bought a, a Hanway last year before the fire. And uh, that is really precarious. Yeah, that is a really interesting answer. And, you know, several of my guests who have asked the question along the lines of we need to put money into developing better kit or whatever. But you're the first person who suggested doing it with a risk fund. And that's, that's a really interesting way to do it because it, it doesn't commit the money to just one maker or just one idea of how to produce things. Mm. But it, it sort of just allows them to capitalize better. That's fascinating. Wow, and just, okay. just having um, makers... Uh, put together business cases and 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 pitch for uh, for money from a risk fund and having to think in a structured way and getting support from fund managers of a risk fund and doing that I think would make a big difference as well. Indeed, yeah, I, I definitely have to hire you to discuss my business with you, but that's not something for the podcast, right? Um, right. But though. Just, just for the sake of listeners who may not be familiar with the story, um, Naaman, am I correct in thinking they're the kit manufacturer who they started out making some really good stuff, then a whole bunch of people ordered it and they couldn't keep up with the orders and they ended up going bust. Is that is that the company I'm thinking of? Now, n- neither you nor I is an insider, neither you nor I have looked at their books and, and can, can say something like um, go bust, but... Um, they seemed to 
have made a really good go at operating at scale and operating as a full e-commerce business. And they, had tr they, they appeared to have tremendous difficulty with order fulfillment and they appear to have ceased trading. Yeah. That, yeah, that, so that is the, because not every, not every listener will be familiar with that. So I thought I'd better just have right, right. And, and it's very sad because the right, they right made beautiful yes, jackets. It's, right. And, and if perhaps if they had had access to funding, they could have expanded a bit in the, the manufacturing yep. production and been able to fulfill those orders in a timely manner and right. things would have been fine. And now we would all be wearing even better kit than we are now. Yeah. Quite right. And, okay. and we would have all paid right. less for it. Um, if I had the money, I'd give it to you. Yes. If I had the money, I'd give it to you. I appreciate that. So that's that's why I have to get you. I have to get you um, to give you some strategic direction for my company, so that I can make the money and give it to you for a risk fund for all of this. I'm all for it. Brilliant idea. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. It's been a, a very instructive and educational talking to you. I'm so pleased. It's been a real pleasure to chat, and I look forward to uh, to chatting again soon. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lynette. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. Patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Join us next week when, in a break from our regularly scheduled interviews, I will be taking you through your challenge for November. If you're not familiar with my monthly challenges for this year, then you jolly well ought to be by now. And you can have a look, you can have a look through the list of uh, episodes for the podcast at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast and catch up with the, I guess it must be 10 challenges so far this year. They included breaking a habit, creating a habit, prioritizing sleep, eating properly, or at least eating better, uh, range of motion, breathing exercises, all that sort of stuff. So October's challenge was to improve your footwork. For November's challenge, you're just going to have to tune in to find out. I am sure you don't want to miss that, so you better subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. I will see you next week.